0: Please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus chapter 15, and I'll read verses one through 21, and let us stand for the reading of God's word. As I mentioned a little while ago, this is a song of Moses. Moses wrote this after the Israelites had crossed over the Red Sea, and the um, Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea And so the women were singing, and Moses, I guess, uh, was singing with them. It says, And Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, the Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea. His chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The flood covered them, they went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send them out, your fury, It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. Flood stood up in a heap. The the depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as a stone. Till your people, O oh Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sisters of Aaron took a tambourine in her hand and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing and Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding of this passage and encouragement as a result of this passage. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For what it's worth, we are not in the book of Acts this morning. (laughs) We're taking a short break from Acts. Josh said I could preach on whatever passage I wanted to preach on, so I chose this passage. Exodus 15. My sermon is entitled, entitled, Sweet Victory. Now maybe you have encountered a sweet victory someplace, maybe in some sports event, or maybe uh, at work when you got some contract or you finished some project and the boss was really happy with you or whatever. There's one sweet victory in my life that uh, I think about actually quite a bit. Maybe not the reason you might think. When I was in college, over 50 years ago, I played soccer, I played for Covenant College my first two years there. Same Covenant College, Lookout Mountain, belongs to the PCA and all of that. Played soccer, first year I played defender, second year I played midfielder, and our midfielders were expected to do a fair amount of defending as well. One Saturday we played Emory, University in Atlanta. Now Emory was a big school. Covenant probably only had about three, maybe 350 students at that time. We were a little nervous going down there. And if you ever go to these big universities, you see all their athletic fields, it's just mind boggling. It was true back in the day as well. So the game started. And the first half, Covenant could do nothing wrong. Our goalie stopped everything that came his way. We were passing with unbelievable precision. Emory could do nothing. It was pathetic. Halftime came. We were ahead six to nothing. Sweet victory was in sight. The only thing the coach had to say, just keep it up, boys, just keep it up. And the second half started. I don't know if this is the reason, but a lot of fans came to watch the game for Emory. A pet band showed up, of all things. It was like a switch went on with the Emory players, and all of a sudden, they could do no wrong, and we could do no right. So the second half ensued, and it was all done. Emory won seven to six, unbelievable. Sweet victory for Emory, not for Covenant. I think something similar happens here. I think Pharaoh was expecting a sweet victory as he pursued these Israelites because Egyptians, they had a a professional army, if you will. Every year they would go out to neighboring nations and conquer them and take uh, all their plunder and come home with captives and everything like that. Why? Because they could. That's just what they did. They had chariots, they had archers, they had spearmen, they had everything you would need. And so after the, um, the last plague and the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of here, go. So the Israelites left. They had left town and all of a sudden Pharaoh said, what have I done? So he called his army He said, we're gonna pursue the Israelites and we're gonna wipe them out. Now, in our minds, we think, okay, he says, okay, we're gonna pursue, but you can't just start an army in two minutes. If you have a lot of kids, you know, the same thing happens at home. You're gonna go on a trip. We're gonna leave at 10 a.m. It's gonna be three hours to wherever we're gonna go. 10 o'clock, I want everybody in the car. 5 to 10, where is our way? Come on, You get in the car. Well, I gotta find my phone. I can't find my charging cable for my laptop. You know, oh, I forgot my lunch, I'll go get it. So maybe about 10.30 you get going, if you're fortunate. And some of you are laughing, you've, you've been there, you've done that, I, we had four kids, we did that. Well, it takes a little while to get everything mobilized for an army to move. John was in the Marine Corps, you know what I'm talking about, yeah. So Israel had a pretty good head start. But they come up against the Red Sea. Pharaoh is in hot pursuit. Fortunately, there was a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire that kind of kept him at bay from the Israelites. But in chapter 14, we see the mindset of the Israelites. I don't read the whole passage, but in verse 12, the Israelites are saying, as they realize they're now toast, or will be toast, at the hands of Pharaoh, he says, Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. It had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to be silent. Just hush. Let God do his work. And he did his work. And the other side of the Red Sea The Israelites were rejoicing as they sang. They saw the salvation God had provided for them. And as believers, we should also rejoice because the Lord will reign forever. Just as he reigned over the Egyptians and other nations, he will also reign forever over everything. When the egyptians were told to be silent we need to think about that for a minute had they been praying god we know that you are the god of the universe we know you're all powerful please save us that would have been one thing but they weren't doing it they were grumbling and complaining you know there weren't their graves back in egypt we could have been buried there we saved a lot of trouble and everything they didn't have any faith they didn't believe god could really save them or God could save them through Moses. God said, just be quiet. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to deal with somebody who was just a complete naysayer about something you are going to do, but it gets on your nerves. And I, I can't say this for sure, but God may have been irritated at them for their complaining. I, I remember what time, I digress a minute. We went to uh, Sioux Center, Iowa to pick up two of our grandkids our oldest grandsons are going to bring them back, and we're going to have them bring their bikes. They Take our bike carrier with us. So we're getting ready to leave on a Saturday morning to come back home. And the way their bikes were configured, the uh, the tube or the bar across the top wouldn't it wouldn't fit on our bike carrier. And that was we had planned a lot of bike riding, so I was kind of in quandary what we could do. But looking at their bikes, and those tubes were not welded to the stem, like most of the bikes I'm familiar with, they were actually bolted on. other words, if I could take that bolt out and then loosen the bolt down by where the, um, the crank went through um, a hub, I could probably fold the bikes in half and they could put them in the car. So I got my tools out, working behind the car, my other grandson came out, sat down the curb, and said, what you doing, Grandpa? I said, I'm going to loosen these bolts and everything and, and then fold the bikes and put them in the car. And for 10 minutes, nonstop, that's not going to work. You can't do that. That bike will not fold in half. You're wasting your time. You need to think of something different. And, and then I finally got everything loose, and I folded it. And he said, I didn't know how would do that. <laughs> In a sense, there's a sense in which the Egyptians are saying, I didn't know God could do that. He wiped out an entire army in a a spectacular fashion. Now when I picked this passage I'd been reading through Exodus. Well, let me say this, if you wanna know the difference between Hebrew poetry and Hebrew prose, read Exodus 14 which is prose, and Exodus 15, which is poetry. And you'll see there's sometimes, there's these over-the-top statements, there's hyperbole, there's, it's much more flowery, I'm talking about the same event, but from a different perspective. So, when I was looking through this, several things came to mind, several things I saw, which I would not really noticed before in a group of this passage, and I said, that's what I'm going to talk about. So I have three, three points. Three points, okay. The first point, you're probably going to say, no, wait a minute. That's, you're a little bit off base there, Pastor Bill. The first point is, the Lord is a man of war. Comes right from verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. You say, no, 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 that, we don't want to tell people that. You know, that's that's something we kind of keep quiet. Well, the Bible doesn't do a good job of keeping it quiet. If you read through the Old Testament, (laughs) I lost track of how many battles there were. But, you know, I mean, there were battles in the wilderness before they went to Canaan. They go into Canaan, the leadership of Joshua. Right off the bat, they're at Jericho. They defeat the um, people in Jericho. The Lord appears to Joshua before the battles and everything. He says, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. I'll never leave you or forsake you. Words that sound a little bit familiar. Joshua led the Israelites and defeated the inhabitants of Canaan. Then we move into the time of the judges. Over and over through the judges, Israelites are doing well. They fall into sin. Enemies come in. They're suffering. They pray for deliverance. The judge rises up, defeats the enemies. Everything's hunky-dory. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. One of my favorite judges is Gideon. I don't know why exactly, but it is. So the Midianites had come in. I remember there were about 135 Midianites in the land. And they would come in at harvest time, take all the harvest, Take animals and just leave the Israelites with nothing. So we open, the account opens with Gideon threshing wheat in a wine press. He's trying to hide what he's doing. So the Lord appears to him. And one of the first things Gideon says as the Lord appears to him is Hey, where are all the miracles? You hear about the crossing of the Red Sea? You hear about all this kind of stuff? I want to say this. So then there's some back and forth with fleeces, wet and dry, and all of that. And then God says, okay, you got 32,000 warriors. That's too many. Tell people, anybody who's afraid and doesn't want to fight, they can go home. 22,000 left. So now there's 10,000. Those were 135 Midianites. And God says, you get still too many. Because if you defeat the Midianites with that army, everybody's going to say, you know, look what Gideon did and not what the Lord did. So they had this thing where they had to lap water a certain way, and I never quite understood all of that. But most of those people were sent home because they didn't drink the water the right way. And now we're down to 300 people. It's like one hundredth of what they started with. But the Lord said, this is what I want you to do. Take these torches and these jugs and these trumpets and surround them and they blew everything. The Midianites went into confusion, killing each other left and right. The rest fled and they were pursued and a great victory came to, to Israel. Or Judah, if you want to be specific. The Lord's a man of war. David, man after God's own heart. David's also a warrior. Saul killed his thousands, David his tens of thousands. Hezekiah. Now we're dealing with the Assyrians, Sennacherib, the king. So one of uh, Sennacherib's commanders, commander of army, a guy named Rabshakeh, comes in to talk to Hezekiah and the uh, Israelites, and he says, I mean, he's, he's trash talking. He says, "You guys got nothing. That every nation we've gone up against and defeated, utterly defeated and destroyed, have told us our God will save us. So now you're going to tell me we're going to be safe because our God will save us, right?" He says, I'll give you 2,000 horsemen if you can provide 2,000 riders for them. You got nothing. A letter had been delivered to Hezekiah in the midst of all this. He goes before the Lord. He says, Lord, here we are. We're doomed unless you do something. We cannot defeat these Assyrians by ourselves. I don't know how many. Soldiers the Assyrians had. But one morning, 185,000 were found dead where they were camped. The rest fled. Sennacherib went back to Nineveh. A great victory, brought not by the Israeli army, but by God himself. Our God is a man of war The New Testament teaches us that Christ is the Lord. Christ is Yahweh, the I Am. Now there are some passages in the Old Testament, key passages, that tell us some things which are different than him being a man of war. He's a Prince of Peace and things like that. But also that he will rule with a rod of iron and he will smash his enemies, destroy his enemies. In Isaiah 11, 1 through 5, with his breath, with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Isaiah 42: The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. I'm not sure exactly what that means, but you've seen these football players go out, they're beating their chest, and they're, you know, hitting each other and they're shaking each other and they work themselves up into a frenzy to go out and do battle on the the playing field. Soldiers do something similar. God does that too, he works himself up and he goes out and he destroys his enemies. Isaiah 66, 15, the Lord will come in fire and those slain by the Lord shall be many. What we read in uh, Revelation 19, the, when, the, when the final battle is done The birds of the year are going to be called, hey, guys, come on. You got a feast laid out for you right here. Come and eat your fill. It's kind of gross in some ways, but uh, that's what it says. John the Baptist saw Jesus as a man of war. He was going to come. The axe is already at the root of the trees and everything like that. But then Jesus' ministry was a little bit different. And one of the things we learn, I think, through Jesus' ministry on earth, is that there's another aspect to warfare which is not physical combat, but is spiritual warfare. There's a spiritual battle which is taking place. There is the devil, there is the evil one. He's not equal to God. There's not a dualism between God and Satan, but Satan does have some power. He's called the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. He's the God of this world who blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians. He's like a roaring lion seeking who he can devour. And then Paul says in Ephesians 6, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We have enemy forces that we have to contend with. In my mind, well, I I, have a new course starting for the Lemp Seminary this week. I was doing all the preparation I could for it. So in my mind, I thought, okay, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I can just devote completely to my sermon. I've got most of the work done. Just putting finishing touches. And I could see myself after breakfast getting another cup of coffee, going to the office, sitting down, and just working there till lunchtime and coming back after lunch for another couple of... Well, had a little snow this week. My snow blower broke. Belt broke. Got a new belt, put it on. It kept slipping off. I don't know why it did, but it did. So Friday, my wife and I were out there by hand, shoveling our driveway a couple of times to try to keep up with the snow. Saturday, I was able to get it run well enough that we could get the driveway cleared off again. I don't know about you, but we had a lot of snow at our house. And I thought, and I talked to my wife about this, said could Satan be involved in that as a distraction to keep me from doing what I want to do in terms of my sermon? I don't know, have you ever had, felt that way? Yeah, I, I think so. I think so. Because things happen that don't seem to make any sense. We need somebody who can come and do battle for us. And we have someone. Don't we pray every week in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done? Yes. So in the shorter catechism on, about that, it says, in the second petition, which is thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed, the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it, and kept in it, and the kingdom of glory may be hastened. This is God's doing. It's God's doing. We're also told in Matthew 16, Jesus saying, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. For a long time, I misunderstood that passage. I saw the church as in a walled city, and somehow Satan's gates are coming up and trying to beat down and destroy us. But I was reading in Micah chapter 2, verse 13, this passage that he who opens the breach goes up before them. They break through the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. The NIV says, The breaker will come. He's the one who will break down the gate. He'll break holes in the wall. It's not us who are in the wall, said he, it's Satan. And we're on the attack, we're on the offense. And whenever that wall is breached, people are liberated and brought into Christ's kingdom. Looking at the time, we always like our sermons to, uh, to be balanced, every point to be the same. But I'm just going to tell you my last two points. The second point is from verse eleven: Who is like the Lord? Nobody. There was no other God who was like the Lord. In the ancient Near East, there were umpteen, There were probably thousands of various gods of kind Baals and Asherah and all this kind of stuff. And the the understanding of those people was that over every piece of land, there was a God who, was, who owned that land. Say you have in your yard, you've got a, a garden in the backyard. There'd be some God who would be in control of that, and he would make sure the seeds sprouted, waters fell, sunshine came, bugs would kept away, no hail during harvest time, all that kind of stuff. And in order to assure that he would do that, you'd have to continually placate that God with sacrifices. And what the Bible says is there's only one person who controls all the land, and that's the Lord himself. In Isaiah, there's an interesting passage where Isaiah makes fun of those who make idols. He says you, you go into the forest, you cut down a tree, you drag it home. With part of it, you cut it up for firewood. Some firewood you use to heat your, you cook your food, others to warm yourself. And then part of it, you, you make an idol and then you worship it. Now you carry that, that mindset of, how do you know you made the, you, you choose the, chose the right side for, the right end of the log to make the idol. What if you cut the idol end up into firewood? Aren't you in trouble? Well, this obvious. It's, it's ridiculous. So the workman has more power than that God he's worshiping. There's only one God and he is awesome in glorious deeds and wonders. And these Israelites saw those very things themselves. And then the last point is the Lord has purchased people for himself. When I was reading that I said, how does Moses know that? Because it says it twice, verse 13. You've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength, your holy abode. And then down in verse 16, uh, the people passed by whom you have purchased. What well, it doesn't say. So those two terms are very much found in the New Testament. There's a lot that's said there, and we could look at a lot of verses talking about God redeeming his people. More than likely, through the Passover, there was an understanding that the Israelites were saved by the sacrifice of that lamb. That lamb, as it were, bought their life. And uh, things similar to that are found in the New Testament about Christ, Christ's death, a little bit later, there's things with the kinsman redeemer who redeems his people. The uh, account of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz redeemed Naomi and Ruth's property and all that kind of stuff. So there was an understanding of redemption. As I was thinking, of some modern counterpart to that. They don't have uh, saving stamps anymore like when I was little. Anybody remember saving stamps? You had to be maybe old to do that. Never mind. Well, now you go to a Starbucks, you get reward stars, right? If you have 200 reward stars, you can get a free drink. I always get a venti size if I'm getting it for free, right? You order it, show them your thing, your app on your phone, they click it and you take it away. It's, you redeem those stars, okay? Something similar to that, I guess. (laughs) Except it's much more important than a vintage sized drink. (laughs) Moses teaches us three things. We learn that God is a man of war, which we talked a lot about. Or there's no God like our Lord. We didn't talk a lot about that. And that God redeems his people. So we might say, how is it that we can tell people that this God, who is a God of war, who works his will, who subdues people and all this kind of stuff, and even subdues us, is a good God? Because once we come into his family, there's untold things that he does for our benefit. He's not bashing us with a rod of iron, he's loving us. And let me close with this. At the end of the Second World War, when the Japanese surrendered, the surrender took place on the USS Missouri. Now, right now in Pearl Harbor, you have the Arizona Memorial, which was on the first day of uh, the attack on December 7th, 1941, a short distance away is USS Missouri. It was on the Missouri, I think it was in Tokyo Bay, where the surrender took place. All of the Japanese dignitaries that showed up, the military commanders, they were dressed in dress uniforms. The uh, civilian dignitaries were wearing tuxedos with tails, very formal. MacArthur said, they will surrender us and we're gonna be wearing the uniform we fought in giving them no quarter whatsoever. And if you see the pictures, see the Japanese all dressed up in their finery, and MacArthur's there, and the Navy would call it wash khaki. It's like you go to Fleet Farm and buy Dickies work clothes. That's, that's what he was wearing. Not only that, he had virtually every plane in the Pacific fly overhead during the surrender, and he had Tokyo Bay packed with Navy warships, U.S. warships to show the Japanese smart that you're surrendering because you have no chance against us. And then, maybe to add insult to injury, who was made the supreme commander over Japan and oversaw the rebuilding of Japan? Douglas MacArthur. But something happened in about just two years The attitude of the Japanese toward MacArthur changed completely. And for someone who they would vilify, someone whom they admired and loved and respected just as they did their own emperor. Why? Because MacArthur dealt with them in fairness and kindness, and he realized, and they realized, he really does have our concern in the forefront of his mind. If we can see a a human example of someone who is a man of war, waging a ruthless war, securing a victory, and then leading with compassion and concern for the conquered, how much more does the God do the same thing for us? He subdues us, yes, brings us into his family and adopts us us as his children and showers us with his love and compassion. Let's pray. Lord, who would have thought such a passage would be so filled with so many things which are are so unique? I think Moses knew a a lot more than we probably give him credit for. But thank you for this song. And just pray, Father, that we might rejoice in your salvation and your subduing us and bringing us to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.